Welcome to the latest edition of the Business Agenda podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the latest report to be released by Ashurst's infrastructure group, Resilient Infrastructure, rising to the challenge of a more sustainable future, and what this means for the global infrastructure investor community. Joining me today is Mark Elsie and Michael Burns from Ashurst, and Lawrence Slade from the Global Infrastructure Investor Association, where he is CEO. Lawrence works to promote private investment in infrastructure with governments and infra investors around the world. Lawrence was previously Chief Executive of Energy UK. At Ashurst, Mark Elsie is the co-head of infrastructure, while Michael Burns is the co-head of energy. Now let's set the scene, shall we? Mark, I'm going to ask you in the first instance to talk a little bit about the report itself, how it came together and what the key findings were. Infrastructure is a key area of focus for us uh, and obviously it's critically important both in terms of of political agendas at the moment but also as an asset class for for many of our clients. Uh, And and we've lived in a world where historically it's been seen as quite a sort of stable, long-term, boring but a relatively profitable area of investment. Now, in our view, that, that's changing. Uh, uh, there's a lot of things happening out there in the world, which means that a lot of the sort of assumptions of the past perhaps don't hold good for the future. And the pandemic has been an example of something completely unexpected happening, which has just changed everyone's perception of, of risk from supply chains to, to travel patterns, to offices and city needs, et cetera. So looking at this, we then thought, well, gosh, there's a lot of other changes out there as well. And, 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 and what, are, what are they? And, and actually, what do our clients think about this? What's their view of the world? Is it, is it just the same and more of the usual or, or are things changing? So we, we, we commissioned a survey which we sent out to, to a, a wide range of our, our clients across the globe from a, a whole range of institutions, both public and private sector, from investors to, to banks, to, 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 to contractors, uh, to governments. And you know, the interesting thing, I think, there was there's a wide range of views. They, I think most of them acknowledged that there, were, there was change happening and, and probably for the, the, the biggest impact of change was seen to be either the drive to net zero or uh, the impact of technology. About 80% of our respondents saw significant changes in both those areas. But perhaps more interesting was that the fact that that didn't necessarily translate through to them seeing a, ch- a change in the risk profile or the resilience of their infrastructure in response to those. About 50% did see this changing the risk profile and, 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 and about 10% saw there's been significant changes. But at the same time, around 50% thought there'd be little change or, or actually that the risk profile would improve. So that was quite surprising to us. Now, despite the, the changes that were seen out there, certainly there's no reduction in appetite and, and nearly all of the respondents showed that their appetite for infrastructure was still very, very strong. But there was, you know, it would probably reflead through to some in, uh, changes in pricing. So approximately 70% of our respondents thought there'd be an increase in, in the pricing of infrastructure in response to some of the impact of these changes, which again is slightly odd given that 50% didn't think there'd be much of a change to things. But you know, it just shows you, I think there's a, polar, a wide range of views out there. And 18% saw there being a significant change in, in, in pricing in response to, to these. So again, you know, uh, uh, some again, of course, seeing, seeing none. And it might well be that you know, some just see see opportunity rather than threat, and that feeds through to some of the responses. Uh, the other, key, I think, key takeaway was the importance of government, really, in, in, in this 
both uh, it's seen as a critically important facilitator. Uh, nearly all respondents saw government and government policy uh, as being a really important facilitator to the evolution of the infrastructure market to, to meet these differing changes and challenges. But at the same time, they saw it as a threat. They saw governments and a lack of coordinated policy, a lack of joined up thinking, a lack of long-term planning as being a real threat to, to the ability to, to, to deliver and to make sure that the infrastructure of the future was resilient and fit for the purposes of the future. Yeah, you've certainly hit some high notes uh, with that uh, overview. Thank you, Mark. I want to turn now to Michael and ask Michael, what are the key factors that you see when it comes to resilience and, and what's sort of resonating the most with, with clients of Ashurst at the moment when it comes to these factors? I think when you look at the key factors that are set out in the report, the one thing that stands out to me actually and, and unifies across the piece is there, the presence of technology risk. And that's both technology risk in the sense of is the technology that underpins the relevant piece of infrastructure going to actually fail or not? That's one aspect, you know, doing the diligence on that. But it's also, and in some ways, even more importantly, and more tricky to, to judge is how future proof is that technology? So whether that's in the context of, say, green hydrogen and the development of ever more efficient electrolyzers, whether that's developments in battery storage technology, for example, digital systemization of processes allowing businesses and therefore infrastructure assets within them to reduce costs. All of those things are technology risk. And I'd say in 20 years of doing this job, I've never seen such a, an emphasis placed by clients on the due diligence and the analysis of the technology that they're doing when they're looking at new investment. Lawrence, did you have some thoughts on that? So I completely agree with, with what Michael was saying in terms of technology risks there. I was just going to throw in there that I think there's also the need in terms of challenges to, to really manage some of the environmental issues we're facing. And, and I was particularly going to raise water in this respect, in that the, the environment that water operators, utility companies are, are looking at now will be radically different in 5, 10, 15, 20 years plus further forward. So there's a real issue here in terms of how we address those changing circumstances, supply, population growth and weather changes, and then how that transmits itself into the long-term investment requirements. And ultimately, of course, is, is how we all, whether we're businesses or individuals, actually pay for those services. So it's very interesting. Out of the top five factors that are influencing or impacting the infrastructure sector, we see three are actually related to the environment. And I know, Lawrence, you specifically spoke about water there, but we've also got transition to net zero, climate change impacts, ESG issues. Uh, so obviously the, the environment as a, as a, as a factor is, is quite large, as is technology. I thought it's quite interesting where the skill shortage is actually at the bottom of the list. Uh, does this surprise you, Lawrence? I think, yeah, in, in many respects it, it does because it's it's clear right the way across the board that actually there's a there's a massive reskilling needed across the economy. And but I think it's one of those areas where we as the investor community and the actual asset operators 
and government for that matter, need to be working much closer together to understand the true impacts of what's happening uh, as we address the issues related to climate change and as we head towards net zero targets around the world. So we really can get to grips and start peeling back the layers of the different types of investment that are needed. And of course, those areas where government should be working particularly, and you might class reskilling and retraining in education as, as something more for governments, and those areas where private investors like those that the GIA represent should be investing as well. Uh, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, in some ways, that feeds through really to how does the, the globe respond to things which are of global impact? Does every country do its own thing? Or to what extent do we try and share solutions, technologies, capabilities and scale up responses in a more coordinated fashion? Which, which sounds like an obvious thing to do, but in fact, nearly every infrastructure agenda uh, uh, from energy to road is almost driven almost by uniquely by national boundaries. Uh, even in the EU, uh, uh, there are different policies in different countries, clearly. So how one really scales and shares the response to, to, to some of these challenges, I think is an interesting thing, which obviously feeds through to skills as well and how you can cross sell. And the challenge, of course, is we're, <laughs> you're not only looking at governments, you're looking at a, a world of, of competitive private sector interests who, again, are looking to do better than their competitors. So trying to get those people to work together to share solutions, technologies and answers isn't, again, it's not without its challenges. So no doubting a host of stakeholders that are all impacted you know, by these factors. I'm really interested now to explore or, or, or find out what the key considerations for a major stakeholder within the industry, and that is uh, investors. Lawrence, what should investors be considering in light of these issues that we've just touched on? I think there's there's a, a lot of issues actually. I mean, and we've touched on on some of the, the government fo government focused issues and the development of of policies. But I think it's it's really key for investors to be undertaking a sort of future. Uh, horizon scanning operation in terms of trying to understand where the trends are going, but also how quickly those trends will, will be delivered. And for the first time, probably, we're almost starting to, to look at the, the potential risk for stranded assets. So risk across the infrastructure community is changing very, very much in terms of how investors need to be looking at the, the risk in different sectors. But also, as uh, Michael touched on earlier in the conversation, you know, the whole issue around the impact of technology is changing super quickly. So there's a lot of change in, in the sector, as highlighted in the report, and it's on the investors to look at how they're managing that change, that risk, how they're interpreting that in terms of the long-term outlook for uh, their returns, but then you know, which sectors are going to be the, the real players, the core players, if you like, as, as the sector develops over the next 10 or 20 years. And considering that a lot of uh, our investors, the big pension funds, are looking at a, an investment horizon of 20 to 30 years. It is that, that long-term investment. So these are really challenging discussions. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to be entering into conversations with regulators, with policymakers, be it in Brussels or Washington or here in London, to, to really get to grips with that and understand that actually to really achieve this, we can't let perfection be the enemy of, of progress here. And we've got to get this this whole program moving if we're going to hit national targets. I think that's that's obviously, I think, absolutely right, Lawrence. Um, I guess another, another thing came out of, of the report is of the differentials of views. And I guess some of the investors are going to see 
these things very much as threats to to their opportunities and 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 the risk of stranded assets that are no longer fit for purpose, they simply aren't resilient for the changes. On the other hand, I guess some will see these as real opportunities in, in a very sort of competitive market where there is change and new risks uh, coming into play. Those that understand those better uh, can get their mind around them, can price them effectively, and also have the solutions to try and manage and mitigate those risks will be better placed than those that are perhaps more passive. So I think there's a threat, but there's also also opportunity out there for the people with the right mindsets and the right approaches. I think that that's very true, Mark. And I think a, another way of, of explaining that or, or example is perhaps how we've seen over the last decade, maybe the rise of ESG. It is now front and center in terms of every conversation we have with investors as to sort of how they're handling the, the ESG element and, and particularly within that broader conversation, the whole sustainability. And we're seeing that perhaps uh, particularly focused in terms of the funds that are being raised now, as opposed to the funds that were being raised maybe 15, 20 years ago, where a focus is very much on clean tech and, and sustainability. And of course, you're seeing some of those arguments played out at the EU level with the taxonomy debate as to what's in, what's out. And I think coming up with the SEC and the FCA in, in the UK and Europe, so as uh, for UK and US. So big changes, but I think it's, it's clear where the direction of travel is. And those companies that can take advantage of that are going to be very well placed. So it's very clear that from the investor side of, of things, the appetite is there to what extent the report uh, sort of goes into that a little bit where it's quite, you know, divided. But uh, Michael, on the flip side or the other side of the table, uh, are the infrastructure funds prepared for this type of investment? The thing about being an investor is that you have to move with the times as the market changes. And so I think they are prepared but what they're doing is deploying strategies and you know a number of different strategies to get into the right place for what is effectively always driven by uh, whatever the mandate of that investor is okay so the strategies that we're seeing people coming up with are either the full buyout of a business they might buy into a management team and then effectively um, give them a smaller pot of capital than might normally be the case if they were investing in some in a more proven technology. The idea that people are, you know, buying established businesses, um, something like BlackRock's acquisition of Callison, taking that business using the established management team and the great business that they got there. And then using pots of capital through that business to take different types of investment than you might see, you know, if they deployed an independent direct investment. I think the other thing that we've seen recently, and Lawrence has, has mentioned it as well, is, is, is actually creating funds with a broader mandate, accepting that there is going to be an element of technology risk within the investments that are being made. And I think that that really, to me, is the most important point is that going back to what I said at the beginning of, of this section about, you know, we need to make sure that at all times people are actually investing in line with their mandate, you know, and that and that really is the the thing that's going to be the most important person, the person going to the investment committee is, does this fit with what we're supposed to be doing? 
I'd, I'd agree with that, Michael. I'd just maybe add in, if, if perhaps if I use the example of EV charging, that there's also sort of a, a timing issue in that, um, you know, more nascent markets, it's when do the infra funds actually step in? So when is there a sort of a, a really sustainable business opportunity there in terms of being able to see the utilisation levels that will actually start paying the returns and over which period of time do you actually look at those arriving? So there's, a, and there's an element here of when you transition from more venture capital type uh, investments into that long-term stable infra investment. And actually we need to understand the almost the sort of the, the, the investment life cycle of, of how the different types of capital are drawn into different uh, technology maturities. And I, I guess <clears throat> from my perspective, leads on to the question as to, to whether, how many of these investors are really tooled up to respond to a world that is changing probably more rapidly than it has done in the last 50 years. You know, well, 20 years ago, however, however long the old industry is, so there's more change and that requires you, I think, to deploy more capital, personal capital, intelligence to assess risks and to evaluate and also to manage assets. And a lot of, a lot of the infrastructure investors are relatively lightly resourced, obviously some are very large. Do you think uh, you know, that, that, that they are as asset class, they're resourced to, to adapt to a more changing, perhaps, and perhaps more challenging world? Yeah, I think I go back to my, my earlier point, actually, that I think it's it's how you're actually adapting your your staff team uh, and using that future scanning role, I think, is is absolutely critical in in really understanding where those technology trends are, are going to be going. And if, you know, if I'm sitting on an investor panel, I really want to be able to understand with confidence exactly what the speed of transition is. And of course, that will vary quite substantially between different geographical and political markets. But often within the European Union, one of the issues that, that has come up in a recent conversation with one of the directorates there is actually ensuring that there's interoperability across member states. And that's something which isn't always the case. So there are some, some big challenges here for, for investors that we really need to start getting our heads around very quickly. Yeah, I think that's right, Lawrence. And also what's interesting is that just in terms of when you get into the transactions themselves, we're seeing techniques that uh, have historically been more seen in private equity to bridge those gaps. We're seeing more of the sort of downside protection that you might have seen in historically in private equity transactions or even venture capital to look after um, the interests of the investors where they are um, stepping in and taking some or more of those nascent risks. And I think the, the other point, by the way, is that we spend quite a lot of time talking about technology risk of, uh, in this discussion, but there are other threats and fundamentals that are going on in the world that are are big issues, right? So the pandemic, for example, you know, we, we all know what that has done to the airport sector in the sort of near term. There, there is still a very good case that the long term um, prospects for airports are still hold up with the same business plan that there was pre pandemic. You know, the idea of more emerging markets getting richer and more travel because you know, people want to go on an aeroplane to, to go on holiday. That, that thesis actually still stands up. The other player in all of this, and it's it's one that we've already uh, you, you've mentioned already, and that is uh, the role of government. So there's a bit of a paradox in the report and the report's findings, where um, government policy represents the biggest obstacle to change, but then is the second. Uh, I think it's it's listed as the second biggest influence or, or to uh, opportunity facing the industry. 
There is a bit of a paradox there. Uh, Lawrence, based on your experience of, of working for both the, the public and private sectors, what are your views on the main challenges facing governments in mobilising the private sector uh, and its capital to meet the future uh, infrastructure needs? Yeah, I think in, in many respects, challenges for governments are very similar to the challenges that we've just been discussing for investors. It's, it's trying to understand the speed of technology development. And we know that governments are often quite afraid about picking winners and, and sort of you know, making investments of public money that, that then go wrong. So I think there's a real challenge at the sort of the senior uh, government level in in really working and understanding where things are moving, how quickly transitions are going to happen, when those tipping points are, are going to be reached. And I think actually there's an interesting role here for infrastructure banks. So in the UK, we've seen the launch of the UK Infrastructure Bank. And in Canada, they have their own. We've seen the role of the EIB in Europe. So actually, it's it's how we can all work with those, those infrastructure banks in terms of bringing forward the more nascent technologies, how they can crowd in private finance into those areas, how they can help de-risk some of those elements. But then there's also the role of governments and regulators themselves in how they can then build on creating this solid policy environment that doesn't just say, hey, this is where our policies are going to be going over the next couple of years. That, that's useless from an investor point of view. What we want to hear is this is the long-term commitment we are making. And you guys can come in and invest with confidence out to the next 20, 30 years. And then within that, there's the speed of policy development. And this is a real focus for, for investors is we see the high level rhetoric in Washington, in Brussels, in London, in you know, right the way across the world in terms of where these where you're going on this. But you need to speed up the decision making. You need to be prepared that some things aren't going to work. There are going to be some failures. So, you know, but let's learn from those. But let's speed up the permitting process so we can get projects underway. Let's make sure we're not blocking new capital coming in. So it's that that speed of delivery from from the government's point of view. And as someone said to me the other day, we've only got 10,000 days to 2050. That's really not very long when you think how fast the last couple of years have gone. So focus, focus, focus from all constituencies here. I think that's absolutely right, Lawrence. And clearly, uh, government has a critical role in, in creating the framework that sustains change. But also, as you say, in terms of policy directions of what, what good looks like. Well, as all well and good say, we need to reduce emissions and be green. And, but how are we going to do that? What are you going to promote as a government? by way of means of transport or uh, means of energy production or means of house building and insulation is actually going to allow us to do that. They are the, the drivers. Uh, sadly, whilst I think the private sector undoubtedly can help in finance and in technology evolution and in delivering change, it needs a framework within it's going to operate. And as you said, that's both policy, but also it's got to be the economic side. Governments have to, I think, create frameworks that facilitate that change as well through regulation and other mechanisms so for example in thinking wind and the renewable sector in the uk i mean the the, the evolution of contract for differences as a mechanism to allow people with confidence to plan and fund uh, future developments is absolutely critical to 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 the success and the evolution of those industries so so government needs not only to, I think, set the policy and the clarity, but also then set out, OK, what is the way in which people can have confidence that they're going to be able to make a return 
by chasing these new technologies and investing in new things and, and, and going through all those different sort of costs and risks. Just, just to add to that, Mark, uh, and something we, we perhaps should touch on more in these kind of conversations and perhaps playing back to the ESG element, is I think there's a role for government in, in addressing the societal change that's needed as we talk about targets like 2050 and, and how much we all will have to change, but also sort of the, the, the who pays element and ensuring that we're achieving intergenerational fairness as we start investing in, in new greenfield infrastructure or upgrading and improving the resilience of our current infrastructure. These are massive questions. And from an ESG societal point of view, we really need to make sure we're bringing different populations with us to understand the journey that we're all on now. There's a challenge also as every country has its different set of challenges as well. And, and it's great for us in the UK to talk about achieving net zero by 2050 and which is very challenging for us but if you're in India or in China with a population and an infrastructure and economy that is just radically different then how that's going to play out in terms of delivering on those things which you know there's a, there's a there's a cost of today and there's a cost of tomorrow but people need to be able to to live today uh, and 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 so again this comes back to you know can we be joined up you know should should the richer countries be paying more to the those with less? If we're really if we're really concerned about global solutions, uh, can we join those things up? And where do where do investors pay? For example, you know, the, the, there's a diktat was I think following COP26 that, that, that about the amount of green finance had to come out of the of of, of the banks and and what they should be aiming to achieve, which you know, came as I think quite as surprise. But again, it's a very positive, tangible thought. But actually, where's that money going to go? Is it just going to go into the nice, safe environments and safe projects where there's, you know, it's got, or, or is it actually going to go out there and take some risk to do some of the things that really need, you know, probably are going to have as bigger impact on 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 the future? So as Lawrence says, there's a there's a great sort of commercial thing, but there's a very big society point at play here, and 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 some very big questions between taxpayer versus um, versus user versus rich country versus poor country and 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 that needs some pretty smart joined up thinking to make that uh, make that all work so mark i've got to say that that uh that presents a bit of a depressing picture really i'm just i'm just wondering how as an industry we can do things a little bit differently and perhaps at a more holistic level to solve some of these problems that you've just mentioned well ben uh, it's really important that we do find those uh, collective solutions as we've already discussed, uh, the prime role has to sit with governments who who have the most control and the most influence. And there, obviously, there are initiatives such as COP that do see the governments coming together to try and motivate and promote change. Uh, from the private sector side, I was wondering whether institutions such as the GIA should change or evolve from being sort of advocates for industry to actually to creating platforms to promote change amongst their members. Uh, through a range of things, for example, co-investing in new technology, sharing learnings, um, committing to collective outcomes, or even having differential pricing for, for between sort of the developed and the undeveloped world to allow more investment to go to those areas that probably need it most. 
Yeah, look, Mark, I think that's a, a really great point. And I think there's there's definitely a role for trade bodies such as GIA to, to play in this. We have a fairly unique convening power, not just amongst our own membership, but to bring different bodies together, whether it's governments or, or the wider stakeholder community and get them around the table. And we've seen time and time again in our more established markets, just what can happen when you bring those groups together, you have these challenging conversations, but ultimately you drive people towards getting behind a unified agenda doesn't do away with competition competition is still very much there and that's still very much driving returns and and getting the best deal for the consumers so let's take that model and see how we can use it in other areas of the world and really get these conversations moving around what we've got to do to adapt our current infrastructure to build resilience and frankly to deliver the infrastructure that we know we're going to need over the coming years and really find solutions that are going to make a difference to tens of millions hundreds of millions of people's lives over the next decade it's not an easy agenda but it's absolutely one that we should all be getting behind and we've all got our roles to play and ultimately i think that's incredibly positive that we're able to have these conversations and recognize that whilst there are challenges there are also tremendous opportunities opportunities for us all to to play a part in getting the right solutions for people all right guys i'm going to ask you uh to get out your crystal balls it's crystal ball time i'm going to ask each of you what uh what will be the next asset type which will offer a secure pipeline of investment opportunities and positive returns for the infra investor community we'll go around we'll start with mark you know, if I had my crystal ball and my wad of £10 notes, where would I be putting it? Well, I'd go back to the area that, that Lawrence, I think, flagged of water, where, where if you had to say there's one asset class that is uh, undoubtedly right at the sharp end of certainly climate change and the impact there, then uh, water, whether it's too much of it or too little of it, both present challenges from flooding risks through to uh, droughts and fires. Uh, providing a sustainable and, and reliable source of water for the population is a critically important, uh, uh, I think, resilient factor for the future of, of, of our society. And one which really, to so many ways, has been, you know, it's been seen as free issue in the past in lots of countries. Uh, and and uh, you know, there does need to be, I think, a significant amount of investment into that area. Because without that, then, then all the other bits of parts of our life, whether it's agriculture, whether it's living, uh, whether it's air conditioning, for example, all these different things, everything relies on 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 having a reliable source of, of water. So I'd have thought that that must be an area where where there is significant potential for the right people with the right approach, backed up by the right policies to make some, uh, probably can't make hay, but you can probably make some raindrops. Uh, Lawrence, to you. I think uh, seeing as our marks uh, taken water, I'm going to stick with what I know and go with energy. I think there's a, a huge way to play out here within this, whether it's uh, seeing the developments in offshore wind and the massive investment that, that China's reported to have made, for example, over the last year, the huge opportunities in, in offshore wind for North America, as, as well as the continued build out in, in Europe. So I think there's a way to go there. But I think also I'd also touch on within uh, transportation. Um, I think there are massive opportunities there, uh, whether it's the EV charging market, which we've we've touched on, or ultimately what's going to happen with sustainable fuels and, and aviation. So I think that there are certainly risks there, but I think there is also some very good opportunities as well. 
And Michael, your thoughts? So I guess Lawrence has stolen my my one, which was uh, which was renewables, and particularly you know with so much capital to deploy, offshore wind does look like um, a really um, sensible place to look because it, it is tried and tested, but we need lots more of it, and that, I think that's the interesting um, piece about um, about wind is that the technology is there. Um, floating, we'll, we'll see more floating as well. Uh, we're working on a project that, if it gets going, will be the largest floating wind farm in the world. It's those kind of developments that you see growing from an existing technology, which I think is that there's, those are the ones that are more capital ready. No, I like to get that. It's interesting to, to hear those responses, I think, because uh, the reality is, in, in my view, there's opportunities everywhere. The change really is, is affecting every as, aspect of, of our lives. Uh, and uh, that, that those changes, as I said, can be opportunities, so they can be threats. But for the smart people, they will, they will make money whichever way um, uh, that, 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 might, that, that trend might, might take you. It's by understanding those and by adapting your investment analysis tools and understanding you know, where your, your investors want you to go and focus on and making sure that, that that you are understanding those asset classes and those technologies, uh, you know, there is just a, a world of opportunity out there. And and as, as as our report showed, I think, while some of these people see these as threats, there are those out there that really see this as an opportunity. Even though there might be more change, and there are going to be uh, features that are going to be a, uh, make that you know, infrastructure potentially less resilient uh, in the longer term. Actually, in many ways, that means there'll be new types of infrastructure that are required will give you new opportunities to invest. So, so you know, the, the reality is there's a, there is a world of opportunity uh, and a world of, of challenge, uh, and, and those variables out there are greater. So what we might see, I don't know how interested Laura's views, is whether you see actually sort of a, a, an asset class of investors with much greater range of returns and outcomes, because actually the assets they're investing in and having managed are actually very different from the rather sort of, might call it almost boring, but quite predictable returns and whether we'll actually just see an increasing diversity, but much more along sort of the historics of private equity versus more sort of consolidated institutional markets in, in the wider corporate sector in the future. I think Mark's spot on there, actually, and we're going to see a, a convergence uh, across different financial classes. Um, and as Mark says, a sort of a, a bigger range of um, returns from the sort of the, the, the more established quote boring end quote uh, infrastructure assets into the sort of the more slightly um, developing technologies as they start rolling out and, and increase their, their levels of uh, immaturity and, and progress along the product life cycle so I think it's it's going to be a very different world in five to ten years time to that which we're all familiar with in core core plus etc today so definitely a market to be involved in and to be interested in. Well, gentlemen, short of everyone shopping at the same crystal ball shop, I want to thank you all for your time, your thoughts and, and insight. Thank you for joining. Thanks for listening. To read the full report, Resilient Infrastructure, Rising to the Challenge of a More Sustainable Future, as well as more insights on resilient infrastructure, please visit ashurst.com slash resilient infrastructure.